0: Welcome to the Leadership Playbook, the show where successful leaders share what they learn to get to where they are. This podcast is an offshoot of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. And it's brought to you by RSM US LLP, the nation's leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm your host, Joe Phillips, the Dean of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. Thank you for being here tonight to this edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. My name is Joe Phillips. I'm Dean of the Albers School. It's my pleasure to welcome you all here. This evening, we're especially delighted to welcome you to this panel discussion featuring three former CEOs at Boeing. And the theme of the discussion is leadership and culture. So our three panelists, uh, Frank Schrantz, Alan Mulally, and Ray Connor, have collectively provided the leadership for Boeing's work in commercial airplanes for over two decades. So we're extremely honored to have them here with us tonight. Now my job is not to introduce the panelists, but to introduce our moderator, and it's her job to introduce the panelists. So our moderator is Dr. Marilyn Gist. She is the Associate Dean for Executive Programs and Executive Director of the Center for Leadership Formation in the Albers School. She joined uh, Seattle U in 2003 to head up the Center for Leadership Formation. With her 25 years of experience in training leaders, she led the development of our Leadership EMBA degree program from its inception in 2006 to its current rank as number 11 in the nation by US News and World Report. She's not just an accomplished administrator, but she's also a great teacher. In 2017, she received the Distinguished Faculty Award from the Seattle U Alumni Board of Governors. So with those credentials, she is eminently qualified to serve as moderator of this panel of distinguished leaders. So I'm going to turn it over to Marilyn.
1: Thank you, Joe. As Joe said, these people are a prize for us to have on any day individually, let alone collectively. I'd like to introduce them one at a time because they deserve that. And as I finish introducing, to ask the panelists to come forward and have a seat until they're all complete. I'll start with Frank Schrantz. Frank first joined Boeing in 1958, then in 1973, He was appointed Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for installations and logistics. And in 1976, he became Assistant Secretary of Defense. He rejoined Boeing in 1977. From there, between 78 and 82, he was Vice President General Manager of the 707, 727, 737 Division of Boeing Commercial Airplane Company. He became vice president of sales between 82 and 84. And in April 84, Frank became president of the commercial airplane company. Then, as if that wasn't enough, in 85, he became president of Boeing, the large corporation, and a member of the board of directors. He served as chief executive officer of Boeing from 1986 to 1996, became chairman of the company in April of 88, and he retired from that position in February of 97. Frank has been a member of the boards of directors for Boise Cascade Corporation, Chevron Texaco Corporation, 3M, City Corps, Seattle Mariners, and Spencer Stewart Advisory Board. He is also a regent emeritus of the Smithsonian Institution's Board of Regents and he's active in numerous civic and charitable organizations. Frank received a law degree from the University of Idaho and an MBA from Harvard University. He was also a Sloan Fellow at Stanford University. Let's welcome Frank Schranz. next guest is Alan Mulally. Alan served as president and CEO of the Ford Motor Company from 2006 to 2014. Through his one Ford plan, he led Ford's transformation to a leading auto company worldwide and number one in the U.S. market. He is also widely recognized as the Detroit CEO who did not go to Washington to borrow money during the Great Recession. <laughs> Prior to Ford, Malali worked at Boeing. You've heard that, right? He started in 1969, where he rose to become Boeing Executive Vice President, as well as President and CEO of Boeing Commercial Airplanes, before he left to take over Ford. At both of these great institutions, Allen was known for developing his working together management system, and I'd be willing to bet you hear a little bit about that tonight. Throughout his career, Malali has been recognized for his industry leadership, including being named by Fortune magazine as number three among the world's greatest leaders. The Pope was number one. <laughs> and he's okay with that. He's also been named one of the world's most influential people by Time magazine. Malali also served on President Obama's U.S. Export Council. NASA's Advisory Council, as president of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, and as chairman of the Board of Governors of the Aerospace Industries Association. Currently, he serves on the board of Alphabet, parent company of Google, Mayo Clinic, and Carbon 3D, which is involved in sustainability 3D printing. Malali holds Bachelor of Science and Master of Science degrees in Aeronautical and Astronautical Engineering from the University of Kansas and earned a Master's in Management from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Welcome, Alan. And newest among these wonderful executives of Boeing was Ray Connor. Ray was president and CEO of Boeing Commercial Airplanes from 2012 to 2016, and vice chairman of the Boeing company from 2013 to 2017, when he retired after 40 years of service to the company. As Boeing vice chairman, Connor provided strategic oversight and guidance for the company's transition to a new single integrated services business, and commercial airplanes product development. As BCA president, Connor was responsible for delivering on a record backlog and overseeing the growth of its airplane programs and services. Boeing Commercial Airplanes accounts for more than 60% of Boeing's total revenues, with nearly 12,000 commercial planes in service, which is roughly 75% of the global fleet. Prior to that assignment, Connor had significant leadership roles in most areas of the company, such as global sales, marketing, aviation services, supply chain management, finance and information systems, manufacturing, and quality functions. He also served as vice president and general manager of the 777 and 747 programs. Connor earned a bachelor's degree from Central Washington University and an MBA from University of Puget Sound. He serves on the board of directors of Alaska Airlines and Adient, a global supplier of seats to the automotive and aerospace industry. Let's welcome Ray Connor. So my format this evening is a set of five questions. I'll start with an opening question for all three of our guests and ask each of them in turn to answer that briefly. And then I have a specific question for each of the three, one at a time, and if the others have something pressing to add, they can do that. And then we'll have a closing question again for the entire panel. After that, we will reserve time for questions from the audience. So let me start with my opening question. BCA, or you may answer this for Boeing as a whole, is certainly a large, very complex organization. Can you provide an example or a brief story from your time there of one of the biggest challenges you faced in that role? And do you think similar situations could happen today?
2: Well, the answer is yes to both. <laughs> I guess I'm going first because of age. <laughs> and I think as one of the things that I could recall fairly early in my CEO experience was our decision to acquire an aircraft manufacturing firm in Canada called De Havilland. Now, a number of you, I'm sure, know who de Havilland is, but it's a highly respected organization, produced good airplanes. What I didn't realize is that it was a great marketing opportunity for us because it was in a field slightly smaller than our 737, which is the smallest airplane we offered. But I overlooked, frankly, a lot of the other considerations that you need to look at when you're making an overall acquisition decision. we simply did not do a good job of researching the operation side of the business, the relationship with the company and the Canadian government. And I was frankly entranced by the marketing opportunity and just kind of ignored everything else. Well, we paid a pretty heavy price for that because Whereas de Havilland had been operated successfully as a Canadian company, it was a quite different situation when the ownership was in the U.S. And we operated for several years, not successfully, and then we disinvested from that. And what that told me early on is, when you're faced with an issue like that, you can't just look at one aspect of the problem. You really have to look at all of it and all of it thoroughly. And we certainly did not do that. So it ended up as one of my biggest disappointments.
3: A few come to mind. Of course, all the launches of the new airplanes and to the increasing competition from Airbus, but also all of the other countries around the world. But maybe the the one that was really, really tough for all of us was the terrorist attacks on 9-11. And none of us ever thought that a commercial airplane would ever be used as a weapon and it changed all of our lives as we know it. And to commercial airplanes, it was a huge impact because we had delivered, I think, 620 airplanes the year before. And then with the travel slowed down, we delivered like 240. And I don't know of another company that's ever survived when their throughput goes down by 60 or 70%. So we pulled together with working together again. We were really clear and honest with everybody what the situation was as a company and what we needed to do to keep it going for the future. And not only did we, we act on that together, but we also continued to invest in the new products, and we came out the other side being able to serve even more. But it was really hard on, on all of us, and I just I'll always take that as a, a really defining moment about the character of Boeing and all the people that serve at Boeing.
4: Well, I mean, <clears throat> I feel a little intimidated here with my two bosses. Uh, <laughs> It's uh, it's a little bit tough, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I would say 90% of our leadership team when I was the CEO would say it was the 787, you know, getting through the production issues and the design issues and then the grounding and then the schedule reliability issues that we had, you know, we got through all that. For me personally, though, it was in 2013 when we had redefined how we do our pension with our union uh, membership and then tying that to the decision on the 777X. It was a gun-wrenching time for not only the community, uh, but for the people of Boeing. And it was really unfortunate that we we got to that point. I think we could have done a much better job in terms of doing the preparation work that needed to take place with the people. Uh, We worked really hard with the, the union leadership Uh, trying to explain to them, working with them, and then all of a sudden, here we were going into a vote, and they weren't ready for it. And then the union kind of did an about-face and went against it, and they were providing a lot of misinformation and those kinds of things, and of course, we had a failed vote. And it felt like, to me, we were going to lose Boeing in the Puget Sound. It was the first step of us moving away. And as a young guy that grew up here, born here, from a Boeing family, coming from the the ranks of the hourly workforce, it was really tough. But I knew that then it became incumbent on me personally to, and I know Alan went through this as well, through a number of labor issues too, that you had to take it to the people. You had to become then the face and the voice of what you were trying to do. And it just goes right back to this, Engagement is everything, inclusion and explaining to people the why, why we were doing this. I mean, you're talking about people that had grown up with a pension. We, we, gave, we went to a different structure. That's all it really was, yeah. but we were changing and they couldn't figure out why. And then we were using the decision of where we we're going to build the 777X and it was really tough. Now we got through it on the other side but we went through a a healing process that we had to almost redefine our culture. Could it happen again? It could happen again if you don't, if you aren't engaging people all the time and you aren't letting them know where we sit in the marketplace, what's driving our situation, you know, how we're performing, and you have the right measures so they can see it all the time. If the companies don't take that kind of approach, you can always end up there. The relationship with your people is one of the toughest things that you go through. It's from a personal level as as a leader. uh, Going through those tough union negotiations is is really
2: difficult.
1: So I hear you talking about transparency, and I'm just going to kind of bounce a little bit to Alan, because I know you had sort of a similar issue with unions. I know at Ford, I'm not as sure with Boeing, but would you agree with what he's saying?
3: Oh, Marilyn, absolutely. And... The other thing that we all found was that that whether you're represented or not, you're all an employee of the Boeing company, and not to let those affiliations get in the way of working together. And it really starts with respecting all the participants, and as Ray said, uh, sharing what the plan is, the why, what we need to um, uh, profitably grow for for the good of all the stakeholders. And so I think it's it's just really all about the employees and and all the other people associated with Boeing, and always will be.
4: I think one thing that is always important, and, and this is a mistake I would say that we, we made during that time too, if you're going to make a change, you have to lead with the executive team first. Mm-hmm. Although some pushed for that, we couldn't get everybody on board that that was the way we wanted to go. So we got the hourly employees on first, and then we, then we came with the executive team, and then we came with the engineering team. But I think any change, the leadership has to be number one to lead
2: that.
1: All right, I'm going to turn to some individual questions now because you've been similar CEOs of Boeing Commercial Airplane Company, but you have some different experiences and expertise. My next question is for Alan. I'm going to move into new territory here. You're known for having developed an interest in leadership, specifically, yeah, and for developing something you call the Working Together Management System while you were at uh, BCA. What do you think is the most important contribution a leader can make? And can you share briefly how WTMS, that Working Together Management System, can help accomplish that? Sure. Um,
3: <laughs> well, first of all, I'd like to start with, uh, with Boeing and the leaders that we have followed and, and who are standing on their shoulders. Boeing has always treasured working together. And when you have an airplane that has 4 million parts and, and, and it safely takes people around the world in the safest way and the most productively, working together clearly with all the participants is going to be a, a critical success factor. I'd like to just mention that Frank institutionalized that. And I've said this before, and he, he, I'm sure he appreciates me saying this, but when he took over as the chairman, Frank decided, and he worked with his senior leadership team, about how we would take management and leading to another level of performance, and especially including everybody. And so not only would we have a smart organization to do what we do, but it would also be healthy by the way we treat each other. And so transparency and understanding the vision and the strategy and the plan, we're going to be really important, and we're going to invest in that, and we're going to invest in all the participants. And, of course, Ray and I were very fortunate, and Phil and a number of others, and he asked us, he invited us to help him and out of that came uh, the working together on the 757 and the 767 and then on the 777 where we made it very intentional that we were going to work together and include everybody and everybody would know the plan they'd know the status they knew the areas of special attention we would actually color code the status and then we worked together to turn the reds to yellows to greens and it was a very magical time because we all knew our roles we knew what the status was we were needed we were appreciated and out of that came the business plan review and the creating value roadmap. And is and another hero of mine because Boeing went through a, a number of different times and uh, Ray understood this really well and Ray brought it back. And so I'm always in awe and thankful for not only uh, Frank's leadership, but also for Ray's.
1: Any other additions? <laughs> the others. <laughs>
2: I I think Alan is a little bit modest on this one. (laughs) (laughs) I was involved in the starting of the uh, quality program where we sent literally hundreds of teams to Japan to find out how they did the production work so well. But Alan came in and he carried it much further. And I think he carried it even to Ford. And that's a lot bigger contribution than than I made, but thank you for those comments.
4: <laughs> um, I can remember distinctly in 1997, when Alan came back to BCA. And we were in a really tough place. And I watched how to approach these challenges. And so when I came in, we were essentially the same, same spot. It was exactly the same spot. I was like reliving a dream, a nightmare, actually. But I knew what to do. Good. I knew what to do. We just started from there, and we never looked back. Every challenge that came up, we, we took it on, and we took it on in the same manner that we took it on in 1997, all working together. We kind of went through a different, little bit different phase, and so we had to kind of take that foundation of the working together management system He used to call it the working together principles, because we were in a much different competitive environment. Airbus had closed the gap, and so we had to move it into what we called the winning together principles, where it was a little bit clearer and it was a little bit more customer focused, but the foundation was still built off of those things. We had to bring the marketplace to every person. And they had to know exactly where we stood, with what value meant to our customers, mm-hmm. and how they contributed to it. And the great thing was, is that everybody knew exactly where we were, and they knew how they contributed. But it was all built off of the working together principles.
5: You know,
3: can I d- add just one fun on story? Forehead. Please. So, <laughs> so Frank decided that we were going to uh, move to a more participatory uh, operation and so he got he, he led with his leadership team and and we did one of our first employee surveys and of course if you're gonna ask people what they think uh, they'll tell you now you don't you don't want to ask them if you don't want to deal with it because it really irritates them and so we did one of the first employee surveys and then Frank asked me and a couple of others right might have been I might have asked Ray to join me on it, to analyze this data and then present it back to the senior leadership team. And they had an offsite, and we flew down on the the Boeing 727, and so I looked at all this data with my colleagues, and it was horrible. I mean, you know, we don't know what's going on. Uh, We don't know where we fit in. We feel intimidated, and it's not safe to bring things up. And, And so we had to present this data to Frank and his team and I'm going this is going to be a really short career. And and so they're all sitting up there and so I start presenting it and then one of the senior leaders they all listened very carefully and respectfully and then they one of them raised her hand and said, "Alan, are you saying that all the employees believe that we should remove fear and intimidation from our management toolbox?" And I said, I said that's what the data says. And and Frank Frank, he doesn't let that go. He's, he says, So, Alan, what do you think? <laughs> oh, no, it's over. So I said, I sure agree with everybody. He said, Thank you very much. Now, that was okay, because I thought I had, Frank had my back, but then I woke up the next morning and the plane had already taken off.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> You're a survivor. <laughs> Yes, sir.
1: Okay, I'm going to turn now to you, Ray. You are the most recent of our panelists in terms of leading BCA and really oversaw a process of deep expansion into China and other Asian countries. I'd like you to maybe describe for our audience a bit of just the global nature of Boeing's business, both sales as well as maybe manufacturing supply chain. And then if you would comment on how you see the current environment of tariffs and trade altering that or affecting that?
4: We could go on for quite a long time on this (laughs) one, but okay, let's just talk a little bit about China. I I think it's really important that everybody understands the importance of China, at least to the Boeing company. Uh, I don't know that there's a more important market to Boeing today going over the next 20 years than China. It's the largest market we'll have, 1.2 trillion dollars of airplanes, over 7,000 airplanes over the next 20 years, and then 1.5 trillion dollars of service opportunity as well. So I mean, it's a huge, huge market for us. But Boeing is really international today. I mean, 80% of all the deliveries that we send to out of the Renton and in our Everett facilities go internationally. But 90% of the products are built here in the United States and the employment is here in the United States. And although we have a large footprint, still the majority, we're, we're primarily a US-based company. And for China, one out of every three seven three sevens goes to China. One out of every four deliveries goes to China. So watching the the tariff issues and the trade discussions that are going on—it's something that we've really got to keep our eye on. Now, did something need to happen? Absolutely, something needed to happen. But it's how you do those things, and particularly in the Asian world, the how is is, is equally as important in terms of what. That's what I get most concerned about—is how we're approaching this, and it can never be a win-lose scenario, and particularly. With you know a leader that's going to be the leader for life, so to speak, and he's got 1.3 billion people. He's got to, you know he's got an answer to, and that's my biggest concern as we move forward. We will expand our uh, international footprint. We have a completion center in China that we're putting together now, but you know really, you know I know. President Trump, when he was a candidate, was making a big deal about that and about how we were transferring all our jobs to China. And that's just not true. We basically, we build the airplane, we get it in a certifiable condition, and then we fly it to China for the Chinese customers. They put the interiors in, and they paint it, and then they deliver it, and that's all they do. We are very conscious of the Chinese desires to become a big player in the industry, and they will ultimately be there. They will. It may take them a little bit longer, but I would never sell them short, okay. because they will do what, it's gonna, what, it, what they need to do to, to get there. So I think it's something we've got to keep our eye on. It's something that should be in, in the forefront of everybody's mind, particularly in this community, about how that relationship is going. Thank
1: you. Do either of you care to-
3: Ni Hao. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show.
1: All right, well, thank you. Let's now get our mics going in the two aisles and hear questions from the audience.
6: Thank you, Romero Valderrama from Samaria Mission. I want to go
4: back to your first comment or response to the question you mentioned the Haviland and that it can repeat itself so recently I saw that Boeing has now entered into a relationship with Embraer and as you look at that that seems to be more complicated than the Haviland because you have a commercial and a military side that had to be spread out you're dealing with a Latin culture and probably here shortly there's an 80% chance that that will be an ultra-right government that will be in power do you feel Boeing learned its lessons from de Havilland in dealing with this new relationship?
2: Well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I think the circumstances are similar but different. I have no doubt that they're looking at the political, labor relations, and all of that in the Embraer, but it carries some other complications involving the brazilian government which wants to have a, a golden decision i guess on their side and in this case we're faced with a direct competitive issue we're not only not in that segment of the market but our competitor is going to be and once you start an airline into a particular product line it's a lot easier to continue on and up into that same commonality than it is to start from scratch so, I know very little about what's going on, so be careful with my answer, but I would generally think it's, it was a good opportunity. And I trust the management to do the research necessary to confirm that or prove not.
4: It is a complicated situation. We were gonna get it all, the military side, everything. And there's still some thought that, you know, depending on who gets elected, that that could still happen. The government wanted to carve out the defense piece of it. We were in a position to get everything. I will say that we had to kind of move rather quickly when uh, Airbus came in and took the Bombardier situation. Now Bombardier approached us as well, but it didn't match well with our product line. The Embraer situation matches really nicely with our product line. And I will tell you that I think their capabilities, and technical capabilities, their operational capabilities, and their culture is very, very similar to the Boeing Company, and they provide us with a, a completely different arm and a different market segment that we could use to help us move up into and get customers that we would not normally have and Frank's right, you know once you get into a customer and then you can start to create this relationship and move on to other things but we're very cognizant of the issues that come along with with the government side of it. But we've had complete support now with the structure that we have in place from the government. It's unfortunate that we're kind of in this election timeframe, but irrespective I think of who gets elected, we will have support on that side. And who knows, we may end up getting more than what we have today, at least what's being, being talked about. But we're going to create even a relationship on the military side as well, because you know some type of a joint venture arrangement Arrangement there because I think that makes complete sense. They have some products that we could that we could help them sell into the international marketplace. It's a much better relationship than I think what would have happened if we would gone with the Bombardier guys.
6: Hi, uh, my name is Alan. I actually work for Boeing Capital and um, just started my MBA program here. So thank you very much for being here. But one particular thing of interest to me, and I know a lot of people in my generation, is uh, is culture. So I wanted to ask about acquisitions. Uh, I know. Boeing's acquisitions have always been a part of Boeing's strategy towards market dominance. With acquisitions comes the responsibility to conform a lot of these organizations into some of the established processes and the tools, uh, systems that are being used by the Boeing company. However, I think a lot of the businesses that have been acquired, uh, their success has been dependent on their ability to remain uh, agile. It's been dependent on their own you know, in-house tools and systems and processes. Now, you know, recently, One Boeing has been a pretty big initiative uh, throughout the Boeing enterprise. Do you see that um, applying uh, that kind of mindset the you know, one tool, one system for a variety of the different business units, a variety of the different products, do you think that's really the most efficient approach? Uh, What kind of challenges do you foresee there?
4: You know, we haven't integrated everybody. There are some of these acquisitions that we do run independently or as a subsidiary and we allow them to kind of to, to work in their own culture that they've developed over time, and, and then we, we draw on their capabilities in, in other areas. It's really about a value system, bringing them into the Boeing value system more than anything else, I think. You don't necessarily have to bring everybody along into one operational approach, because you can't have a Boeing subsidiary functioning in a manner that is not in alignment with our value system, and I think that's probably the bigger, the bigger issue. We make a judgment call as to whether we should run these as a subsidiary or bring them into the fold as part of the core Boeing company, but we do, we do tie them to all the same management principles and, and value system.
6: John Ostrower with uh, the Air Current. Question about the future of product development for Boeing. And and you each launched, uh, shepherded, and brought to market and honed and matured new products, 777, 787. As Boeing seems to be approaching another decision on a new airplane, what advice or uh, strategic lessons can you share from the creation of the 787 and the 777 that ultimately can help make potentially the NMA, a uh, different cost and structure outcome than how things have been going in terms of the increasing cost of airplane development. And in that same vein, from a kind of, it's kind of a broader question, but locally, uh, how do you see the Puget Sound region playing in that, in terms of how you craft a program to also incorporate the community and, and potentially where the airplane is ultimately built?
3: I like the way you phrase the question in terms of a point of view about each of the airplanes that you mentioned. And I think it's going to be continue to be important that the airplanes are born in the marketplace, that they're market-driven as well as, as customer-in. And the market-driven and customer-in are with all the stakeholders. And I'll give you a, a couple of examples about that. When we were doing the uh, the 757 the 767, the fact, and Peter Morton's here, and he was a leader and in Fad and I see now. and In the marketplace, we decided that having a common cockpit would have a lot of value. We didn't decide that, but the airlines and the market did, and we used the technology to make that happen. Going from four engine airplanes to two engine airplanes, a huge deal, but more in the marketplace from an efficiency point of view as well as a safety point of view. And maybe one of the biggest examples of, of always staying really attuned to the marketplace and what really does have value in the eyes of the participants was the decision on both the 6.7 and the 777 to go long range point to point. And I can remember and many people here that I know that I can I my eyes are getting adjusted to the light, were a part of this because the airlines always paid more for speed. Always. So when we got to the, the 777 and the, the technology, we could go either way. We could make an airplane that went faster, like the Sonic Cruiser, which is why we talked about that with the airlines, because we wanted to find out what they thought. Or we could use the technology to go longer range, more efficiently. And I remember a meeting we had in... I think it was at the winery, which is probably appropriate for that. (laughs) And we had 52 airlines there. And we showed them the Sonic Cruiser concept. And then we showed them the 777 concept. And they both had clear advantages, depending on what you thought was an advantage or not. And so I got time to vote. And we went through the vote. And it was 52 to 0 to vote for the 777 configuration over the Sonic Cruiser. So it was born in the marketplace because the airlines uh, and the financiers everybody believed that if you could take people where do they want to go without stopping and go halfway around the world that you were going to absolutely change the world so going with the two crew cockpit twin engines long range halfway around the world it changed the world
5: and
4: and you know i think on the nma we've developed so many lessons learned from our Past experiences and John, I didn't have gray hair, not one gray hair before I got it, <laughs> before the 787. But, you know, uh, we lost a little bit of our discipline around how many new technologies we bring into an airplane and then how fast we want to bring it to, to the marketplace. I think. Um, with the NMA, we're going to be very, there's a lot more discipline around those kinds of things, but again, it will always be, as Alan said, it will be a market-driven airplane, irrespective of what we do. It will be exactly what the marketplace is looking for. It will change a little bit over time as we move forward. And then when you move into a, a supply chain type of taking the same approach, don't let people go off and do, a, do some of their own thing. Create a production system that's built on a foundation of similarity. So, We all are operating from the same kind of hymn sheet associated with with that. And then, you know, draw on the places that have incredible experience. And then if you do want to go to some place that's new, you bring it in slowly. And you do that in a very disciplined fashion. You know, we'll see how things go in terms of those decisions, three of us. You know, we all have our opinions, but you know what, our opinions don't really matter anymore. <laughs> but that's one of, the, one of the things you learn really fast after you're retired. Your opinion really doesn't count. <laughs> but I, I know that there's a real disciplined approach about how we're going forward on that. I think that's good. If we take this, this, the 777 approach to things, we'll be fine.
1: Thank you very much. This question is in regard to leadership. So just recently, Fortune Magazine named Lockheed Martin's President CEO, Martin Henson, as the most powerful woman in the world. Leanne Carrot from Boeing, CEO of Boeing Defense and Security, recently moved from the 30th to the 23rd spot. So do you think that one day the board will name a woman as the President and CEO of the Boeing Company, and if so, do you guys have any predictions? Yeah.
4: I absolutely believe that that will happen sooner rather than later, no question. And Marilyn is a, a fabulous leader, uh, Leanne's a fabulous leader as well. But which is really interesting General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin, and Boeing Defense are all led by women. It's pretty incredible.
6: Hi, my name is Alexander Erickson. I'm a sophomore here studying computer science, and I was just wondering, so there's a lot of new technologies that are uh, being talked about around aircraft, um, everything from potentially AI-driven cabins to modular cargo space for people. And so I'm just wondering, how do you see Boeing developing innovative solutions for these future possibilities uh, given your past experience with Boeing's innovation?
3: Fabulous question. And I wondered, when I first arrived at Boeing, I was wondering the very same thing, because I was really fortunate to have my thesis advisor was the head of aerodynamics at Boeing. And he had just come to the University of Kansas because he wanted to uh, teach and give back. And so I learned a lot about Boeing before I came. And when I arrived, I thought, of course, aerodynamics would be the center of the universe. And so I was ready to go. And and it was. Um, but there are a lot of other disciplines on all those technologies and more. And what I found, and it's still alive today, I mean we we uh, compare notes, is that every day there's a, a stream of work on every enabling technology. I'll just give you one example about I mean engines are a good example of another one is about materials going from steel to aluminum alloys to, to uh, composites to thermosets, thermoplastics. So there'll always in Boeing, there's a, every one of the enabling technologies that are emerging and existing, there's a set of people that are looking on how to improve that. And as Ray said, in every new airplane, the, the biggest decision that we make is which one of those technologies are ready to be incorporated that can make the most significant improvement in quality, fuel efficiency, performance. And it's one of the most fun things about product development. And we always laugh that, that, and Ray said it, we always think that we want to be really disciplined about how many innovations we'll put in at one time. Another thing we always laugh about is that we'll make sure that they're validated before we start. Yeah, we always have that idea too. And then we start working it, and then the airlines are all over us. They see all these juicy, neat things that can really make a difference to them. And so they really push us to the very edge. And in a couple of the stories you heard tonight, sometimes you know, we did the best we could, but they were still in development, and but we got through it. And to see what Boeing does, and how few of those that we really are not done yet is really quite remarkable. And I really think it's because on every one of those disciplines, it's a conscious plan to be looking ahead, looking at what's coming, developing them, maturing them, and they'd be ready to go to incorporate them together. It's the toughest thing we do.
4: It really is. Are we production ready to bring something new in? And that's where we probably stumbled a bit on, this, on the 787. Not quite ready in some of those areas. And it really was what drove some of the delays. It was just, we were still refining things as we were moving along.
3: Well, my most proud moment was working with Ram, I and I have so many of them, because he's such a terrific leader. But he called me one day at Ford and said, let's talk about batteries. <laughs> And he said, I'll never forget, he said, You have a lot of lithium ion batteries uh, in all your cars, and we have one that's not working very well. Can, could you please send down your experts? And they were, yeah. well, they were there the next day. They were there. Next day.
4: That was an amazing collaboration of all the industries around to come to a solution on that situation. And it just demonstrated how. Boeing has the ability to pull tons of people together, and everybody saw the importance of making sure that this got fixed and fixed properly. It was a great effort.
3: Just to build on that, on the lithium ion batteries, it's clearly probably not the chemistry for the future in electronics and everything else, as you know, because of the issues it has. But we've developed it very well together, but out of that came a commitment to get to solid state on the electrodes. And when we make that breakthrough on batteries, I mean, what that's going to do for the world, because it'll be the first time that we can store the electricity. So not only is the whole electrical grid sized for a hot day in California for air conditioning, is that we can't store that electricity. And so once we make that breakthrough on batteries, on efficiency as well as cost and safety, we're going to be able to move the electricity from the grid to our homes to the cars. And then we take the next step of actually creating the energy clean, now we've reached something that's gonna change the entire world on not only generating the electricity clean, but actually using it. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And you're gonna be right in the middle of it.
2: I wanna talk about technologies. <laughs>
1: okay.
2: And you don't want me to.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> Hi there. I come from an aviation passionate family and I've lived in Seattle for a long time and it's changed quite a bit. I'd like to know what you would say to fresh Seattle U graduates about choosing a job in the Seattle area with so much uh, technology companies competing for your candidates.
2: Well, I, first of all, if you get to be 86, you don't hear very well, <laughs> <laughs> at least in my case. But I think you're asking, what do I think about the technology companies staying in Seattle and creating a hub? I think we have a good shot at at keeping that. We certainly have a vast technology base. And if we don't blow it by over-regulating and over-taxing that industry, I think we'll have a chance to expand it. And I think there's nothing much more important to this community than keeping that base. So I hope so, and I think we have a
3: fair chance of succeeding. I'd like to pile on to what Frank said. Frank gave a speech. I don't remember when it was, but it was one of the best. 80s. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was when we were making the
4: 777, building the facility. Getting getting ready for the
3: 777 we were kind of losing the plot in the Northwest about competitiveness. And you can, any one of us can look up the data on any element of competitiveness and see that we're losing the plot. What I mean by that is that, and what Frank is saying is that we need to absolutely stay focused on what it means to be competitive. And not just the companies themselves, but the whole infrastructure, the transportation, now, everything has to be competitive. There are wages, the benefits, and the way to do that, and what Frank was saying is let's work together so that everybody knows what it means to be competitive so that we can continue to work here. And the companies that we are attracting because of the talent, to your point, are unbelievable. Every board meeting, I watch another capital allocation for Google, and, which is fantastic, and they always ask me what I think, and I tell them how wonderful this place is. But I think that that point about us staying competitive is going to be what allows us to provide these great jobs and great careers but there can't be a better time in history for graduates and where a lot of the students are today to be able to join this workforce in any of these great companies they're going to continue to change the world but we've got to stay competitive
4: but i'd love to take as many graduates as i possibly can and take them up and show them what we're doing it is so fantastic. It's the reason why we all stayed as long as we have in the industry. It is one of those industries that when it captures you, it captures you for life. If anybody says it's not a high-tech industry, then they're crazy. I mean, you put your families in these airplanes every single day and, you just, and they just go. And as Alan says, there's four to six million parts in every one of them and they all work. I think that's pretty high technology, if you have <laughs> Hello. Kevin Wagoner. Let me just start. Thank you for uh, paying for my master's degree. I really appreciate
2: it. <laughs> There's a few aspiring CEOs in here. What advice would you give them about assignments and development and experiences that will help them grow and develop to be leaders like yourself?
4: I'll start. You know, I used to get a lot of mechanics that would come and see me about, you started as a mechanic and now you're the CEO. How, how did you do that? Well, what I said was, be the very best at what you're doing right now. And prepare yourself through education or whatever else to move to the next job. But be the very best at what you're doing today. And if, you, if you're not the very best at it, then go be the very best. And make sure that you're moving in that kind of a direction.
2: Well, in my experience, the kiss of death on a large Company is to leave the impression that you're looking for the next job and the one you're in is just kind of passing through. And I can cite you a number of cases where pretty senior people, particularly engineering, (laughs) I I agree with you, Frank, (laughs) forgot that and uh, left the impression that they really were looking for that next job no matter what. And frankly, their careers were not outstanding. So do the job you're given with all the enthusiasm and be prepared for the next one, but don't campaign for it. I would like to add on to
3: that also that as you're developing your skills and, and doing the best job you can, keep trusting the process of asking others what you can do to keep improving your effectiveness. I think what you're gonna really find is that just the fact that you want to improve is really a big deal, an attitude, and that you're committed to doing that, and you'll get all the help that you want, and especially on the working together, and especially about who you are as a person. I mentioned this earlier, but is in a very unique position, I think it's one of the reasons they're number 10 now, is that it's not just the skills of an MBA program, it's also exploring who you are as a person, and what do you believe in, and do you believe in a higher purpose and the greater good? And I think what'll happen to you as you pursue that, especially with working together, It'll just accelerate your effectiveness, and that'll determine what happens in the in the future. And then you don't have to worry about the future because you're going to create it being you.
0: So, time for one more question.
5: I'm a Seattle native and a the Seattle U's oldest grad student, and. I just want to thank you all for your service to our community in this region, and also for supporting our university. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a minute, everybody's been throwing you a lot of snowballs, so uh, Ray, uh, I mean Mr. Connor, uh, you threw a lot on the union really ab- about the, <laughs> about the po- and certainly they have unrealistic expectations a lot of time and they're a pain in the rear, but. We're taught in class that, you know, it starts with the top with the management for us to create a, a positive working environment and avoid poisonous, you know, contract negotiations. Why do you, do you think the management of Boeing takes any responsibility for that? And how come you haven't been able to have labor tranquility like say Ford has or PACCAR has?
4: I think we should take a lot of responsibility for that. I think though we have a 10 year agreement with our labor unions out to 2024, we have an opportunity to change that mindset. It shouldn't be a contentious situation. And it works a little bit on both sides, but from a, from a management side, like I, like I said previously, you have to bring the reality of what we're doing in terms of competing, in terms of how we act together, and you have to demonstrate that in terms of what you do as an individual. You have to be willing to go and have those conversations. When we went through the union discussions, I knew I I had to be the one. I answered every email. I don't care if I got a death threat, which I did, and I answered that email. It was almost like a door-to-door campaign to explain to people why, and I realized we hadn't done that. You have to make people aware of where you are and we put together a measurement system around what drove value for our customers. The one thing that people understand, at least at the Boeing company, is the importance of winning in the marketplace. Okay? That ensures the future of our company, it ensures the future of our jobs and okay, so how do we win? What do we have to do to win? What's important to our customers? And we defined that very clearly, and then we measured it, and we provided it to everybody on a monthly basis. They knew exactly where we were, and it was just six items. And it was six items that they could all see themselves in. You can't just sit back and let this stuff happen. You have to bring your company in the marketplace and the customer, and we did a lot of things where we brought the customer to our people through videos and through interviews. and. And they all started to attach to that. Everybody at Boeing, at least, attaches to the customer, and they attach to the product. And if you can get people's heads around that, that is really good. And when we left, uh, we did a survey, and 75% of the people said they completely understood the winning together principles, and they identified with the winning together principles and the keys to winning. They understood. 75%. I don't know that we've ever had a survey that did that. That's the connection you got to drive with people. That drives trust, it drives the level of cohesiveness with your team, it shows that we're all one, trying to do the same thing. And I think the most important thing, and Alan touched on it and, and Frank touched on it, and Frank was the, you know, the epitome of this, humility as a leader. We're just teammates, we're all just trying to do the same thing. And if you can bring that to your job every single day, in terms of how you treat people and the way you talk to them and how you respect what they're doing. And everybody has a role to play. If you can do that, you're going to create an environment that is really, really positive. And I think that's the responsibility of of a leader. Create the vision, create the positive environment, and create that kind of motivation that comes with that. And profitability, winning, all those things, that will be the reward that you receive.
0: Let's give our moderator and our panelists another round of applause for being with us tonight, Charlie. You've been listening to The Leadership Playbook, the podcast edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series at Seattle University. If you enjoyed what you heard today, consider telling a friend and give us a good rating on iTunes. You can subscribe to our show for free on your favorite podcast app or find us online at leadershipplaybook.org. Find out who our next guests are by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Joe Phillips, the Dean of the Albert School of Business and Economics. Thanks for listening.